0: I'll be reading our scripture passage today from the book of Jonah, starting in chapter 3, verse 10, through the end of chapter 4, if you would like to take your Bible and follow along. When God saw that they had done what they had done and how they had put a stop to their evil ways, he changed his mind and did not carry out the destruction he had threatened. This change of plans greatly upset Jonah, and he became very angry. So he complained to the Lord about it. Didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, Lord? That is why I ran away to Tarshish. I knew that you are a merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. You are eager to turn back from destroying people. Just kill me now, Lord. I'd rather be dead than alive if what I predicted will not happen. The Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry about this? Then Jonah went out to the east side of the city and made a shelter to sit under as he waited to see what would happen to the city. And the Lord God arranged for a leafy plant to grow there, and soon it spread its broad leaves over Jonah's head, shading him from the sun. This eased his discomfort, and Jonah was very grateful for the plant. But God also arranged for a worm. The next morning at dawn, the worm ate through the stem of the plant, so that it withered away. And as the sun grew hot, God arranged for a scorching east wind to blow on Jonah. The sun beat down on his head until he grew faint and wished to die. Death is certainly better than living like this, he exclaimed. Then God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry because the plant died? Yes, Jonah retorted, even angry enough to die. Then the Lord said, you feel sorry about the plant, though you did nothing to put it there. It came quickly and died quickly. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people living in spiritual darkness, not to mention all the animals. Shouldn't I feel sorry for such a great city?
1: Well, good morning. You know, you often hear about the story of Jonah and the whale. We don't know that it was actually a whale, just a great fish, but it's often called Jonah and the whale. But in this chapter, chapter four, as we wrap up our series on Jonah, we get to hear the story about Jonah and the worm. And so that's what we're going to look at today. If you haven't done so, you can join us there in your Bibles. You may also want to reach inside of your celebration folder and pull out the message notes. It's got the passage that Ron just read for us as well as some blank space on the back and some places that you can fill in later on. But as, I, as we've been studying the book of Jonah, I've just been impacted at how God goes to an awful lot of trouble to rescue Jonah's heart. Don't you think? And that's just very encouraging for a knucklehead like me. And it's even more encouraging that he's still doing it today for self-righteous, boneheaded followers like some of us. Well, as we've been going through Jonah, I I remembered a, a short humorous sketch that was written by John Duckworth called Joan in the Whale. And uh, I like what John Duckworth did with this kind of a humorous re-looking at the story in a modern setting using a character instead of Jonah, but a character named Joan. And so let me just share this with you. It says, Joan was in her dorm room eating an O. Henry bar and listening to the radio and having her quiet time all at once when the Lord spoke to her. And out of respect, she stopped chewing and turned the radio down a little. Joan... Said God, I want you to arise and go across the hall to Min Ninever, the girl who lives in room 207. I want you to be her friend. Joan giggled, and then she laughed so hard that her fish-shaped earrings and her cross necklace shook. Come on, God, she said. Don't kid me. I'm a busy person. You know perfectly well. "...that I've got to study hard so that I can be a missionary for you over in Upper Tarshishstan." She chuckled again. "...I'm not kidding," God said, not sounding very amused. Well, Joan closed her Bible, five versions, not counting the paraphrase, and she frowned at the ceiling. "...Lord," she said, "...that's simply out of the question. Men Ninevors, the girl they call the whale, she must weigh 300 pounds." If I were seen with her, I'd be a social outcast. She tossed her candy wrapper in the garbage. And that would just ruin my witness. Well, there was silence. Joan looked up at the ceiling again, but only saw the light fixture. And to her surprise, God did not speak again. In fact, she didn't hear from him. Not even a postcard for the next six months. Not that she worried about it too much. She was busy these days, and before she knew it, she was ready to fly to Upper Tarshistan. So she packed her suitcase full of missionary stuff, and she boarded a plane to a faraway land. But the Lord sent three skyjackers onto her flight. And halfway across the Atlantic Ocean, they pulled out their guns and hand grenades, and everyone was so afraid. Everyone, that is, except Joan. She was sound asleep in her seat next to a nervous hardware salesman from Trenton, New Jersey. Wake up, cried the salesman, shaking Joan. How can you sleep through this? We're being skyjacked. Joan opened her eyes. What? She mumbled. I noticed you wear a cross, the salesman said frantically. Maybe if you pray, we'll get out of this mess. Joan brightened. I'm glad you suggested that, she said, whipping out her New Testament. Let me witness to you. And so she proceeded to read 34 verses to the hardware salesman, as well as a lady senator, two army generals, a baseball player, and several ministers. Before long, she had read her verses to nearly everyone on the plane. Suddenly, one of the skyjackers burst into the cabin. All right, he yelled. I want one hostage to keep with us. We're going to let the rest of you go free. The passengers cheers and pointed to Joan. Take her! They shouted in unison, and a sigh of relief echoed up and down the aisles as she was led away. Soon the plane landed and the passengers were set free, but Joan was tied up in the cargo hold. And Joan was in the belly of the plane for three days and three nights. And then Joan prayed to the Lord from the belly of the plane, saying, Okay, God, I get the picture. If you get me out of here, I'll go back and witness to the whale. I I mean, to men. Hold it, God said. Who said anything about witnessing? I just said, friend. Gotcha. The Lord spoke to the skyjackers and they kicked Joan out upon the landing strip. And so Joan returned to her dorm room. And in a few months, she was Min Nineveh's friend. It took a lot of work, but lo and behold, after almost a year, Joan introduced Men to her friend God. And the three of them became better friends than ever. One day the word of the Lord came to Joan a second time, saying, Joan, arise. Oh no, she said, where to this time? Why, to Upper Tarshistan, of course, said God. Ah, said Joan, but this time she took a boat. I love this little humorous sketch, because I think it just points out how easy it is to be so busy serving God... That we miss his heart. See God's heart seems to always be about reaching spiritually lost people. Isn't that true? Just like Pastor Claude reminded us last week. God just loves people. Sometimes we lose sight of that. What I think is interesting in this story of Jonah. Is is that Jonah loved God. It wasn't that he was... Hardened towards God. He loved God. He had dedicated himself to God to be a prophet for God. It's just that God had asked Jonah to do something that he didn't want to do. And that request revealed something about Jonah's heart. But as we've seen in this series, God is anxious. To rescue the hearts of both pagan sinners and self righteous followers. Well, if this is your first week here, let me kind of bring you up to speed on the story. You can read the, the story of Jonah yourself. It's just four little chapters. Probably take you 10 minutes to read it. Heck, between now and the time I finish the sermon, you could probably get in three or four times. But, but in case you want to listen, you can read it later. But here, here's my review I was, I was working and I came up with this completely original poem this week, I think it's much close, I think, it's, I think I get higher scores on accuracy than I do poetic verse, but, uh, but let me share it with you here, prepare to be impressed I call this Jonah, that's what I've called in my poem God said go, but Jonah said no so the sailors had to row then overboard, Jonah throw a great fish swallow, then went heave-ho, which brought repentance by by Jonah's foe. The plant did grow, the worm had to burrow, the hot wind blow, because God wanted Jonah's sorrow. But there ain't no mo'. There you go, thank you. Thank you, I'll be here all weekend. You see, God had told Jonah to go to Nineveh to tell them the good news of his love for them and to warn them to repent or they would face his wrath for their sin. But Jonah didn't want to do this. And so, as we saw From the beginning, Jonah went in the exact opposite direction. Instead of Nineveh, he went went the other way. That was chapter 1. And so in chapter 2, God uses a great fish to acquire Jonah's compliance. So that then in chapter 3, Jonah does what he was told to do. He preaches. And revival breaks out in Nineveh. And as a result of that, God withholds his wrath. And Jonah is very upset about that. Now, don't you find that a curious response for an evangelist at a great revival at a place where he's been preaching? I mean, imagine Franklin Graham preaches and the whole city, you know, repents and and turns to God and he's, you know, he's just cheesed about all of that. I mean, it just doesn't make sense, does it? Well, that's where we are in the story. Jonah, at the end of chapter 3, as Ron read a minute ago, start there with me and then we'll move into chapter 4. But it says in verse 10 that when God saw what they had done, their repentance, and how they had put a stop to their evil ways, he changed his mind. And he did not carry out the destruction that he had threatened. In chapter 4, this change of plans greatly Upset Jonah. And he became very angry about it. Here's what we need to know: is that anytime our emotions, in fact, here's what our emotions do: our emotions reveal our wrong beliefs, don't they? Anytime we have an emotion that's out of proportion to the event, that's a revelation about something that we believe. See, see, we think it's the event that makes us angry. When you do that, it makes me so mad. That's not true. It's not the event that makes us angry. It's, what we, it's something we believe that the event brings about causing in us. Make sense? See? Anytime we have an emotion that's out of proportion to an event, it's like shining a flashlight on that because it shows something that we believe. Now, here's my first little commercial Here is We have a ministry here at at New Life uh, for inner healing prayer. And and if you don't know anything about that, let me just tell you. Inner healing prayer is not a bunch of hocus-pocus new age stuff. It's just simply this. That our mind will eventually circle around to some painful event. And what inner healing prayer does is it helps us when we lock on to some event it helps us get to a realization of some wrong belief about that event that's causing it to be so painful. And then what we do is then we shine the light of God's truth on that so that we can hear from God rather than believing the lie. See? Because our emotions point back to some wrong belief that we have. I've benefited from inner healing prayer. If that sounds like something that might be of benefit to you, contact the office here and ask, hey, can, can you hook me up with some people who could tell me or help me with inner healing prayer? But our emotions point back to some wrong belief, and that's what's going on for Jonah here. So he's mad. He's angry, way out of proportion to the event. In fact, almost bizarrely so. And so verse 2 says, so he complained to the Lord about it. Didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, Lord? That is why I ran away to Tarshish. I knew that you are a merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. You are eager to turn back from destroying people. So just kill me now, Lord. I'd rather be dead than alive if what I predicted will not happen. I mean, what a drama queen, Right. But the question that begs to be asked here is why does God's graciousness towards these people get Jonah's underwear in such a bunch, right? In fact, look at God's response in verse 4. It says, The Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry about this? I mean, I think the translation would be, Really? This is what's got you so upset? Now, You need to understand a little background on the Assyrians if you don't know that already. Because I think that brings some clarity to what's going on here. The Assyrians were known for their cruelty. They were one of the most warlike people in history. They were lovers of violence. They would pluck out the eyes of their defeated foes and mutilate their bodies. When they would capture a people, they would take the kings and the officials and they would cut off their heads and hang them in trees around just to kind of send the message that here's what happens when you mess with us. I mean, they were cruel, savage people. Women were made slaves and sexually brutalized. Children were killed or made slaves. It didn't matter their age. They were renowned for their torture. So it's easy to understand why Jonah wasn't a big fan of the Assyrians. But what I don't want us to miss this morning is as you step back at this, don't miss this. Jonah is complaining about God's mercy. That he's compassionate. That he's full of unfailing love. That he's slow. To react in anger and judgment. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm incredibly thankful for those things about God. But see, this whole series of events reveals something about Jonah. And it's this, that Jonah suffered from what I like to call just enough grace. You know, grace that's enough to cover me. (laughs) You know, my sin but it's not going to stretch all the way over there to you and your sin. And there's the problem. Jonah's self-righteousness led him to believe that he was somehow more deserving of God's grace than these people were. And that was the problem in Jonah's heart. You see, the The problem of self-righteousness leads us to somehow think that I'm better, that I'm, I'm more deserving. But the truth is, there is nothing in me worth saving. Nothing. That's the truth. But we get all delusional about this. In fact, I think a good... And we don't have the time to, to go into it, but, but read it for yourself. In the New Testament, remember the, the story of, the, of the, um, the unforgiving servant? Remember, the king forgives him of this massive debt. I mean, more money than he could have ever paid back in his lifetime. And the king just forgives him. And then he gets right out of prison for that. And he goes and he encounters the guy that owes him a relatively small amount of money. Remember the story? Okay, owes him a a relatively small amount of money, and his response to him is he 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 gives him his wrath. He he throws him in jail. Says you can't get out till you pay it back. You know he's unforgiving towards after after having just been forgiven. And we read that story and we think, how in the world could this guy do that? How in the world, given this massive debt that you were just forgiven of, that you could not forgive this person, and that's just the point. That's the problem of our self-righteousness. Somehow, in our delusion, we think that what other people owe us, how other people have sinned against us, pale. I mean, I mean, is greater than this massive debt that God has forgiven us. Because we are, we so much are believe in our in our own righteousness that we miss. There's nothing in me that the debt of forgiveness is so much greater. You see, what we do is we way underestimate God's holiness. And we way overestimate our righteousness. But you see, friends, I deserve, you deserve, we all deserve the full measure of God's wrath. Period. See, it's not that You know, God's probably a little put off by my sin, but man, He's really wrathful towards you. How how do we think that? In fact, I think until we get this, I don't think we've really grasped the gospel. That I deserve, I deserve all of God's wrath. There there is nothing in me that I bring to the bargain of my salvation. Nothing. Nothing. And that the truth is that God, in His totally undeserved grace, saves me. And He continues to save our hearts from our misguided sense of ourselves. And that's what He's doing here in Jonah, in the book of Jonah, with Jonah. In fact, let's keep going, verse 5. Look at how God does this. It says, then Jonah went out to the east side of the city and he made a shelter to set under as he waited to see what would happen to the city. And the Lord God arranged for a leafy plant to grow there. And soon it spread its broad leaves over Jonah's head, shading him from the sun. And this eased his discomfort. And Jonah was very grateful for the plant. Jonah's grateful for the plant. I mean, his comfort was what was of most immediate importance to him. Which I think is the question that begs to be asked from us. Is how often do I let my comfort become more important to me than the lost people who are all around. So, what's going on for Jonah here? Verse 7 says But then God also arranged for a worm. And the next morning at dawn, the worm ate through the stem of the plant so that it withered away. And as the sun grew hot, God arranged for a scorching east wind to blow on Jonah. And the sun beat down on his head until he grew faint and he wished to die. Death is certainly better than living like this, he exclaimed. I mean, we're back to the drama queen again, right? And God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry because, to be angry because the plant died? Yes, Jonah retorted, even angry enough to die. And then in these last two verses, listen to what God says. So much truth here. It says, and then the Lord said, you feel sorry about the plant. So you did nothing to put it there. It came quickly and it died quickly. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people living in spiritual darkness, not to mention all the animals. I mean, God just sort of, you know, you know, hey, if you don't care about the people, what about the cows? He said, Nineveh has more than 120,000 people in spiritual darkness, not to mention the animals. Shouldn't I, God says, feel sorry for such a great city? See, there was a huge difference between God and Jonah's heart. God's heart was on these spiritually lost people who were about to be the objects of his wrath while Jonah's heart was all wrapped up in his misguided self-righteousness and his prejudice and his petty concerns for his own welfare and peace of mind. Boy, I'm sure glad none of us would do that. See, it's so easy to wag our finger at Jonah, but miss how much we are just like him. Self-righteous, arrogant, and self-centered. Well, there's so many points. I mean, I, I, you could make hundreds of points, I guess. I've limited myself to just four. So if you flip your message notes over on the back, you can fill in the blanks if you care to do so. Let me just give us four hooks to kind of hang this chapter in bringing this series to a close on Jonah, here's my first one. It's this that if we are going to have God's heart, we have got to deeply care about lost people. We have got to deeply care about lost people. People who are separated from Him. People who don't have a personal active relationship with him. And let me just say to you this morning, man, if you don't have an active relationship with God today, you just need to know how deeply this God loves you. And I'm not talking about religion. You know, religion is all about what we need to do in order to make ourselves good enough for God to accept. That's what religion is. Christianity is the polar opposite of that. Christianity is about the links that God went to to give you the opportunity to have a relationship with Him because there's nothing in us that could ever be enough to merit a relationship or merit His favor. We, are, we only merit His wrath. He's a holy God and we aren't. And Christianity is about the links that God went to sending His own Son to die on a cross for you. Boy, if you've never embraced that, if you've never made that your own, if you've never taken that step of entering into that relationship with God, please talk to somebody today because God deeply loves you. He deeply does. But you know, if we're not careful, what can happen to us is we get saved. And we start progressing in this relationship with Him and soon it becomes all about us. You know, us and the other people around us who, they've gotten saved and they're progressing in this relationship and it's all about us. And we forget that God deeply cares about lost people. You know, this, this, this statistic haunts me. This year, less than half of churches in America saw even one person come to know Jesus as their Savior. Less than half. Even one. You know, I've been in some of those churches and and it's not about the results as much as that the culture shows itself that that they forgot that they should even care about that. And it's so easy to throw rocks at other churches. Forget other churches. Let's talk about each of us. Do we have God's heart on this? Do we deeply, deeply care about lost people, the ones that are all around us, the people we work with, the people we live next to, our friends, our family? Do we deeply, deeply love them the way God loves them? Okay, here's my second little commercial. In September, I'm going to do a little couple-week class, two, three-week class, um, called Roadblocks. And uh, so if you hear something about roadblocks and you want to come, come to this. We're just going to go to Sunday morning for a few weeks. Because here's my conviction. I think most Christians just stink at being able to connect to lost people. I think we just stink at them. Number one, what we do is we kind of create our own little subculture you know, and we don't even know how to function outside of our own little subculture, you know, and so, lost people, it's like, it's like they're, it's like we're, we're missionaries in France and we, you know, we, they speak French, we speak English, and we, you know, we create this Christian ghetto culture, we can't get out of it, and, and, and no wonder, and then we, we forget that we should even try to get out of it to be able to relate to the lost people around us. And, and, and we don't even know how to talk to spiritually lost people. In fact, when we do, we either turn it into some sort of sales pitch, are some sort of argument about who's right and who's wrong. And uh, so I, I, I just thought we should do a class. Not that this will be the end all answers, because I think when you really talk to lost people who, who genuinely want to talk about these things, I think they bring up four roadblocks. I think, I think they, want to, they want to talk about uh, how's a good God send people to hell. I think they want to talk about uh, how's Christianity claimed to be the only right way. And then followed that by real closely by abortion and homosexuality. I mean, those are the things I think that, that non-Christians will bring up. And, and and again, it's not about, hey, let's let's come learn all of this stuff so that when, you know, we can beat them in the argument. See, we miss it! Just learn how to talk about these things. Just learn how to listen to where they're coming from. So we're going to do that. And I, Patty Trayson and Todd Eisler is going to help me. And we're going to just kind of, and again, it's not the last word on that. It's just going to be a thing. So when, when, you, when you hear something about that, if you want to come, we're not expecting thousands of people. I just hope a couple of you come. But... Uh, we're going to do that, and I think it'll make us better, anybody of you that come, and me too, because we've got to get better at this, because you know what? God deeply loves lost people, and we need to love lost people too. If we're going to have God's heart, we've got to deeply love lost people. You know, we've been learning over the past year or two that the gospel is not just for getting people saved. It's for all of us. But if we're not careful, we can be gospel-driven and still forget that it is primarily good news for those who are perishing. We can't lose that. Here's my second point. It's this. That grace isn't grace unless it extends all the way to the furthest reaches of the vilest sinner. And see, somehow the error that we make is thinking somehow that we are in any way better, or more, or that we have more to offer God than the vilest sinner. John Newton got this when he wrote, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Not that saved a pretty good guy like me. Not that saved a guy who needed a little help. We're wretches. We've got nothing to offer this bark. I love in the song, Come Thou Fount, that we sing around here, Often, in one of the verses, it says, um, "Oh to grace, what a dayler, uh, what a debtor, daily I 'm constrained to be. We are all debtors to grace every day, because if it wasn't for grace, we have nothing to bring to this deal. It's totally by grace that I am fully deserving of God's wrath. If, if we don't get that, we have not grasped the gospel that I have nothing to offer God. Period. End of story. That's all she wrote. And yet he saved me only because he offered me completely undeserved grace. And that's why I, or you, are the last people who have any right to look down on anyone as though somehow we are better or more deserving. Paul got that. That's why he said in 1 Timothy 1.15, and this is a trustworthy saying, and everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them all. We got nothing to bring. It's only because of grace. Grace reaches to the vilest sinner, and you know what? That's me. That's me. If you're here this morning and somehow you've believed the lies in your head that you're too far gone or that you've done too much or that God couldn't reach you, you don't understand grace. And you don't understand how we're all in the exact same boat you are. Grace extends all the way to the vilest center. And you know what? That's every one of us. And so because of that point three, we need to recklessly celebrate That our God is merciful and compassionate and slow to anger and filled with unfailing love. We need to recklessly celebrate that. Now, how in the world is it that I can get so excited about a football game and so little impassioned about this? How in the world is that even possible? and, and i 'm not talking about expressiveness I mean different ones of us are are exp- and you know you know this is a free place where you can be as expressive i, I... But but different ones of us, we're wired differently. It's not about how outwardly expressive you are. Be what you are. I mean, I've been in all sorts of worship settings. I've been in settings where, you know, people jump up and down and raise their hands or don't raise their hands or wave hankies, you know, or wave at you or shout things. I've been in settings where they run up and down the aisle. One time I had a guy just lay out right here while I was preaching. That was a little weird, you know, (laughs) because I had to keep looking over there to see if he was there, you know, kind of thing. But you know, that's all good. It's, it's, it's fine. It's great. It's a freedom to worship, see? But it's not about how outwardly expressive we are, but, but it's, it's how this grips us. Sometimes, I, I can just get bored in worshiping God. I mean, I can start thinking about what I want to have for lunch, which all of you will start doing right now. Or... I start thinking about what I got to do tomorrow, and how is that even possible? But I do it. See we need to recklessly celebrate this. As Claude said last week, there will be times when I just erupt in thanksgiving, praise and worship. It just grabs hold of me. What an incredible God! It is amazing, Grace. You know, the story of Jonah dispels the lie. That somehow God in the Old Testament was mean and wrathful. And yet in the New Testament, He's gracious and loving. Because that's not what you see here. God is, is gracious and loving, anxious to relent, anxious to forgive, anxious to withhold His wrath. And in the New Testament, what we need to understand is that God is just as wrathful towards sin. It's just that he placed the full impact of his wrath on Jesus. And that is why any level of self-righteousness is just absurd. It's ludicrous that we could even think that way. And how could we help but worship a God like that? And so, again, if you've been holding back because somehow you mistrust trusting this God, you don't understand grace and you don't understand how deeply, deeply he loves you. Well, one more point. Number four is just this. And I think you see this is just, as you think about the whole book of Jonah. It's that God uses whoever and whatever he chooses to use. I mean, you see that in the book of Jonah, don't you? I mean, he uses a fish, he uses a worm, he uses a plant, he uses a scorching wind, and he uses a self-righteous, disobedient, prejudiced prophet. And so I think the question left for us is, what about us? What about you? Are you surrendered to him to use you in any way he wants? But maybe you've been too interested in shady vines to really do what he wants. Maybe your prejudices have held you back. Perhaps you've been so busy that you've not allowed yourself to really hear the call that he has on you, just like Joan in our little sketch there. Hey, what the person across the, the hall? Maybe you haven't heard because you've been too busy doing God stuff <laughs> to hear God's voice to get in touch with God's heart for you. In fact, maybe for you the issue has been your heart. And what I hope you grasp from the book of Jonah. It's that God is ruthlessly seeking to rescue our hearts. I I I think it's curious to me how the book of Jonah ends. Do you, do you find that odd? It just it just stops. It's like you know it's like you keep wanting to turn over. Hey, there's got to be another chapter here, right? You know, it just stops. Just this abrupt ending. And you know, as I was. I've thought about, you know, in the book of Jonah, there's just a whole lot of repenting that goes on. I mean, you see the sailors, the pagan sailors, they're repenting. You see the king of Nineveh, you know, come down from authority and power to repent. You see the whole city of Nineveh. Wouldn't that be great to see our entire city repent? But not Jonah. At least we don't read that he does. There's just this abrupt ending. You know, it's kind of like the story of the older brother in the prodigal story. It just stops. I mean, there he is, boom. So I, I don't know. I, I wonder, and again, I could be wrong on this. Probably I am. But like like most of life, truthfully. But I, I wonder if even the abrupt ending of Jonah is not an expression of his humility and his repentance. I, I just wonder. I follow my line of reasoning here. The, the whole reason why we have a book of Jonah is because either he wrote it or he told somebody the story. I mean, that's just common sense, right? So we have the book of Jonah, and here's what here's kind of what I think. Nobody writes a story or tells a story to a bunch of people that would just leave you looking so stupid in it. I mean, really. I mean, who who would, who would tell this story where? You, where you leave yourself looking stupid and and arrogant and racist. Nobody would do that unless the ending of the story was the repentance of your own heart. I don't know. Maybe that's true. Maybe it's not. But here's, here's what I do know. Is whether Jonah repented or not, we do have the opportunity to repent. To change our hearts. To do business with this insanely loving God. So we're going to continue to worship. And as we do, um, you know, we have prayer partners that are here, like we do every week. And, And I just want to tell you, if you could use prayer this morning, maybe you're sick. Maybe you're hurting. Maybe there's an area you want to surrender, you You've been hearing God pulling on you and you just need to surrender something over to God. Maybe you just benefit from having somebody pray with you or pray for you. You know, they're going to be over here and over here. You just come as we continue to worship. And you, you take advantage of, of having someone pray with you, pray for you. Let me pray for us right now. Father God, I, I just thank you again. for your love I confess to you again Lord my my arrogance my self righteousness my delusional thinking that somehow I bring something to this deal forgive me for that and Jesus thank you all right, thank you. It's just such not enough. That you died on the cross, that you absorbed the full measure of the wrath that I deserve. Not I deserved past tense. Today I deserve it. Yet you would pay that price for me. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. So as we worship, as we surrender, as we yield things, as we listen to your voice, God, you be pleased in this time as we sing, as we, as we take steps of obedience for your glory, I pray. Amen.